Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we open ourselves to receive what you have for us today. Help us to hear you speak. Help us to listen and help us to follow. Amen. Last week at the England v Scotland rugby match, there was an incident before kickoff which drew a lot of comment. After the national anthems, they had a round of applause for Captain Tom Moore, victims of COVID, thanks for our emergency services. Then there was a moment of silence, marking the fact that racism has no place in sport, or indeed anywhere. And during that time, some players took the knee, an act which started out as a protest against unjust treatment of black Americans. But over the last year or so, it's become a kind of globalised symbol of the fight against racism. And what drew comment was that some of the players did it, whilst others remained standing. I noticed on social media and in some parts of the press that there was criticism being aimed either at the authorities for not encouraging it properly or in some cases at the players themselves for not taking part. Surely it was claimed it's such a simple gesture. None of these players would, who were not taking the knee would have honestly claimed to support racism. And it looked bad that so many of them weren't doing it. Why not? Just do it if it's that simple. Now, before I go further, I think had I been in that position, I probably would have taken the knee. What I'm less comfortable about is condemning others who chose not to. In particular, I don't think that I am in the best position to lecture black rugby players on how they should demonstrate their opposition to racism. But my main problem was that it could be very easy to take a knee before kickoff, when the cameras are on you, and then racially abuse a player in the first ruck. Just as it's possible to stand on a doorstep applauding NHS staff, but then behave in ways which keep neither yourself or others safe from COVID. I guess what I'm saying is that things like taking the knee or doorstep applauses have their place and I would argue they're good things. But there's a danger that they can become ways in which we declare our righteousness whilst looking around us at who is not doing it and judging them. And more important is the state of our hearts, how we behave when no one else is watching. This week, on Wednesday, we'll see the start of Lent. It's a 40-day period in the build-up to Easter. It's a time for searching our hearts, reflecting on where we are in our relationship with God. Maybe we'll consider those areas of our life which we need to be allowed to be brought into the light of Christ. To know his grace forgiveness, the chance to make a fresh start. Those parts of us which are dead 
and into which we need Jesus to bring resurrection life. Lent is a period that's associated with wilderness. We remember the children of Israel journeying 40 years in the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. We remember Jesus spending 40 days in the wilderness between his baptism and launching his ministry in Galilee. It's a time of testing, of wrestling with temptation, of looking inward and of Jesus truly coming to terms with who he is and what he is called to do and to be. And we're invited to follow Jesus into that space, to reflect on who we are, those areas of our lives where we're struggling. Perhaps to name and confront our own demons, as it were. Perhaps that's a space in which we feel we have been living for far too long now. I remember last year talking about how it was appropriate that we were going into lockdown during Lent with themes of wilderness, distance, isolation. You know, when I said that, I'm not sure I reckoned on us still being there a year on. But the image of wilderness in the Bible has another side. It was also a place of provision of transformation, where people encountered the divine. It's in the wilderness that Hagar encounters God and becomes the first person in the Bible to name God. El Roy, the God who sees me. In that place where she thought she was alone, abandoned, forgotten, she realised that God was with her, that God sees Jacob, Job, David, Elijah, they all met God in the wilderness. And one you might think is rather odd, but given what we read of Israel's wilderness wanderings in the early part of the Hebrew scriptures, but in a number of places in the rest of those scriptures, this period was recalled with a certain amount of nostalgia. It was the time they were formed as a nation, when they were closest to God. It seems people have always found ways of romanticising the past. So yeah, wilderness is a place of danger, temptation, chaos. But it's also a place of nourishment, solitude and encounter with God. It's a place where new beginnings can emerge, new life can develop. That's why the image I've chosen to go with this series is that flower in the desert landscape. Even in the midst of a seemingly dry, dead, barren landscape, new life is possible. And that's why, although in our non-conformist traditions, Lent is not something with which we've really tended to engage much. It can be helpful and important. We can want the happy side of faith, all the ups without the downs. We can want to manage without the self-examination. We want to celebrate resurrection without ever really fully appreciating why we need it. But a fully rounded, mature faith rooted in Jesus needs to embrace both shadow and light, death and resurrection wilderness and promised land. 
Not just so we can spend a few weeks being miserable, but so we can appreciate the joy. To do that, we have to really acknowledge the contrasts. But wilderness is a space where we encounter God, perhaps in more meaningful and sustaining ways than we ever do on the highs of the mountaintops. It's a place where the distractions of life are stripped away and where we discover who we truly are. So over the next few weeks, we are going to follow a series called Worship in the Wilderness. It's from the same people who prepared the material we used at Advent. And we're going to look at several aspects of the journey into wilderness. Today is the first we're reflecting on a secret journey. This story of Jesus in the wilderness is one of the most sacred stories we have in the Gospels. For really the only source of the story must have been Jesus himself. No one else was there to witness it. It's about who Jesus is when no one's watching. When if he just bent the rules, ah, who would know? And it's those times that we discover who we truly are. When the cameras are off and nobody's watching. We may have learnt a bit more about ourselves in the last year or so as we've spent more time social distancing, perhaps alone, or perhaps with those closest to us who generally get to see more sides of us than others. Who we are when we're alone can be very different from the public face we present to the world. And who we are at home can be very revealing too. If you want to really get to know someone, go live with them for a while. Because let's be honest, those we are closest to often see the worst of us. If we continually act like a jerk at work, they'll sack us. If we continually act like a jerk in social settings, people will stop calling us or inviting us out or they won't bother with us. Family? Well, we're kind of stuck with them. There's something about the secret journey that it reveals who we truly are as opposed to the face we present to the world. And that forms part of both of our passages this morning. Joel is believed to be a, been a prophet who was involved in the life of the temple. But in his role he seems to have noticed a disconnect between the people's worship and the rest of life. They weren't living out what they claimed to believe. And his book opens with a plague of locusts, which devours a harvest. Now, Joel never says that this was caused by God or was a punishment from God. But he does use it as a warning picture of destruction that could befall them if they don't change their ways. Joel is calling people to repentance, to see how their lives don't match up what they claim to believe when they go to the temple and to recognise what a destructive mess they are making of things and to turn around and do things differently. 
In some ways, it's like a Lent-like period of self-reflection and examination into which Joel is calling them. But he's aware of the capacity to put on a show, to go through the motions, to be seen to do the right thing without it ever really affecting us. One of the rituals associated with mourning in their culture was tearing clothing. For example, in the story of Joseph, you know, the Technicolor Dreamcoat one, not the father of Jesus. When Joseph's brothers tell Jacob that an animal must have attacked and killed Joseph, Jacob rips his clothes. It's a sign of mourning. And there are times when a period of self-examination and reflection can be painful and sorrow and lament can be appropriate expressions of worship. But just as it's possible to take a knee in a stadium when the cameras are on you or clap loudly when all the neighbours around you can see who's out on the street from the NHS, in worship we can go through the motions. We can do all the right things when everyone can see us. And it doesn't really have any impact on how we live. There can be a disconnect between what we say we believe and stand for and how we express it day to day. It can be possible, for example, for me to get really angry about climate change without really wanting to do anything about my consumption. It can be really easy to be angry and sorrowful about inequality and poverty in our world without considering the impact that my choices have. So Joel says, rend your hearts, not your garments. He said, don't settle for the outward show. Don't go through the motions. Don't just lament the state of society and kind of be one step removed from it as if this has got nothing to do with you. Consider your heart. Consider your life. Allow that to be transformed. Likewise, Jesus knows our capacity to want to be seen to be doing the right thing. Prayer, fasting, charitable giving, they were all good, important parts of the spiritual life. They were all good things. Jesus assumed that those who followed him would do them. They weren't bad of themselves. In fact, they were good, godly things. But it was possible to use a horrible overused modern term for them to become religious virtue signals. If you want to get noticed it's quite easy and people will give you a bit of a round of applause and Jesus says if that's what you truly want well done you got it. Even the talk of reward can make things slightly concerning. There can be this sense of, well, God, I've prayed, I've fasted, I've given lots of money away. So now, God, come on, you owe me big time. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. There is something far more natural, organic even, about what Jesus is saying here. 
It's about being drawn deeper into relationship with God, discovering more of the life that you are called to live. That in itself is the true reward. In a sense, we know this to be true. Generous people are happier people. People who can fast, who aren't slaves to their cravings and addictions. They're more contented people. Those who have learned to lean into their relationship with God, who realise the world doesn't revolve around them, that God has a Messiah and it's not them. They're more fulfilled people. See, no matter how good or virtuous a deed, if you are doing it to keep God in your debt or to keep God happy or even just because he's told you to and you want to keep him off your back, you will be frustrated. Your faith will never bring you real joy. It will never be enough. But those who are prepared to examine their to face their own frailties, who learn to pursue the right thing regardless of who's watching or what they have to gain out of it, who will allow their repentance to reach the heart. They're the ones who encounter God, who are drawn closer to Christ. And that of itself is the true reward. And that's why we are invited to enter this Lent season, to approach the season of self-examination, to follow Jesus into the wilderness. It's not an easy thing to do. It takes courage. It's, it's a path we'd probably more easily avoid. And each of us has stuff we'd probably rather not face, demons we'd rather not confront. But when we go there, we find God waiting to encounter us. And to encounter us, not with condemnation, not to go, oh, seriously, are you still struggling with that? But a God who greets us with love and compassion. We have a God who knows we are dust. Who knows... We are fleeting, but who loves us with an inexhaustible, patient, kind, enduring, unfailing love. Who created us for relationship and delights in drawing us deeper into relationship with himself. When we go to the wilderness, new life becomes possible. We can develop a relationship which can not only survive the wilderness, but nurture new life even in the midst of it. Because it's not reliant on the externals. It's not based on getting the approval of others. It's not striving to be noticed for getting it right. It's simply emerging as a natural expression of who we are 
and who we're becoming in Christ. Grace and peace be with you. Amen.